Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Today's episode will look at how China figures into the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The episode was recorded on February 23rd, 2022, and will thus not reflect the most recent developments on the ground. We try to keep the conversation focused on more general issues and hope you will enjoy it. Ukraine has once again risen to the headlines due to an intensification of its conflict with Russia that has been smoldering since 2014. Ahead of the recent Winter Olympic Games in Beijing, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese state and party leader Xi Jinping issued a joint statement of support and affirmed their commitment to deepening back-to-back strategic cooperation. Chinese statements on the situation in Ukraine itself sound much more uncommitted, urging all sides to shoulder their responsibilities and work for peace, as Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi did at the Munich Security Conference recently. My name is Johannes Alayon, and to look for the Chinese position in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the status of the Russia-China alliance, and the implications for future conflicts involving Russia and China, I am joined by two experts on the issue, Jakub Jakubowski and Helena Legada. Jakub is a coordinator of the Connectivity in Eurasia project and a senior fellow at the China program of the Center for Eastern Studies, OSW, a public think tank based in Warsaw. In November, he co-authored a study on the Russia-China alliance. Helena is a lead analyst in the foreign relations team at Merix and has recently published the new issue of our security interest tracker. Jakub, Helena, welcome to the Merix podcast. Hi, hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Jakub, in a recent study for the Center for Eastern Studies with Michal Bogush and Vitold Rotkiewicz, you looked at the alliance between Russia and China. To understand the relationship, could you tell us how it developed and where it stands right now? Well, thanks for this question. Our reading of the situation, of this long-term view on the Russia-China relationship, is that it has gradually evolved into what we call an informal alliance. It's certainly not a formal one. And this is um, one of the key features of it. We have two powers that really treasure their autonomy, also in terms of any legally binding treaties. They, of course, have plenty of those, but it's not a formal alliance. It's an alliance that is based on their mutual acceptance of each other's key interest on the global scene. And uh, I'll get into that in a minute, but it's not the only fundament. The other one is a thing that is rather an alliance between two authoritarian regimes rather than states. We're talking about two uh, groups, one being the the elite gathered around Putin and then the other being the CCP that basically perceive the the world on their ideological level as a, a struggle between what they perceive as a U.S.-led attempt to overthrow authoritarian regimes through color revolutions, and the, the U.S. attempt directed at both Russia and China, along with their satellite states. So uh, the, the strategic overlap of interests and then the ideological uh, bond between the two is, is what we perceive as a fundament. And then there's a long list of different areas of cooperation, like the economic cooperation, like cooperation on very special issues on the international scene, like the, the within the international institutions. They're then sometimes coordinating with regards to very specific, what they call hotspot issues, 
around the globe. Uh, but one of the key features of it, apart from this informal uh, type, is that they seek autonomy. They perceive that they're in a, a joint struggle and they're increasingly willing to, to join hands and, and uh, support each other. It was not a, a predestined effect. Uh, for years, they tried to kind of make their own peace with the West, unfortunately, on their own terms, like with Russia or China in other way. But eventually, around 2012, when uh, Putin came back to power and uh, with the Polotny protest that finally convinced him that the U.S. wants to overthrow his rule. And then the Xi Jinping coming to power in this very same year, they finally found out that they have no other choice but to, to, to coordinate and, and cooperate. And uh, last word here is that I think we are in a very crucial moment of this relationship going beyond bilaterals, which was the case for years, a very strong bilateral bond, which is now entering a global stage. And I think the February 4th meeting in, uh, in Beijing was a, a major breakthrough here since they openly and in a moment of, of an un unprecedented crisis in Europe, they've openly stated that the security situation and their struggle with the US in Europe and in the Pacific are structurally linked. And now they are willing to cooperate on the strategic level openly which is a, a totally new situation and which kind of results if with China leaving their comfort zone and uh, really trying to find a balance between not antagonizing the West too much and supporting Russia strategically at the same time. Helena, would you like to come in here? Uh, sure, happy to. I mean, I, I quite agree with Jakub's take on, on the relationship. I do think that it started very much as um, what many call a marriage of convenience, right? So Putin and Xi Jinping, China and Russia sort of felt the need to come together in the face of an increasingly hostile, or as they perceive hostile, West. But I think it's become something much more solid over the years. And this links up to the issue of shared strategic interest that, that Jakub was mentioning. So it is not just about the fact that both sides look at the West as the adversary, they do share a lot more interests and a lot more approaches, right? So especially when you look at their takes on the global order, for instance, and this is again the authoritarian tilt that Jakub was mentioning, they have a lot more in common with each other than they do with, with Europe or with the United States. And that has created a lot more common ground for China and Russia and has turned this relationship into something that's a bit more like an alliance than it was a few years ago. And something else, another final point that I would like to make is that, yes, this, this is a very close relationship. And the February 4th joint statement by Xi Jinping and, and Putin, to my mind, was very significant uh, for some of the reasons that Jakob mentioned. But I still see limits in the relationship. This is not a full alliance. There are limits to what each side are willing to do for each other. And this is why, why this Ukraine crisis is so key when it comes to the China-Russia relationship. In the past, we've seen Russian reluctance to get involved on anything related to Taiwan or to the South China Sea. The joint statement may have shifted that a little. We still have to see. But from the Chinese side, looking back at the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, they tried very hard to stay out of it. They still haven't recognized Crimea as being part of Russia. And this is another limitation. 
yes, they stand together. Yes, they share interests and approaches to the global order, but they each still have their own geopolitical ambitions and their own spheres of influence and their own conflicts. And they aren't particularly in a position yet where they are willing to share each other's struggles. So that's why, as I said, this, this crisis over Ukraine is so fundamental because we're going to see whether that has shifted over the last few years. Yeah, if Let's, I may very quickly jump in, I really like the metaphor I've heard in Beijing several times. And I think Xi Jinping has used it himself, being the back-to-back coordination, like two boxers fighting back-to-back. They're fighting the same war, but they are not like synchronized. They're just punching in, other, in, in different directions, but they can feel that somebody holds their back. That, I really like this. It's very picturesque in a way. Let's get into a bit more detail then on the on the Ukraine conflict. Um, Chinese communication on that has been uh, fairly conflicting. So when talking to Russia, they talk about having their backs, uh, being a very close relationship, and then talking to a broader audience, let's say. So in, in official statements by the foreign ministry, it, it's all, um, we all have to shoulder our part to, to keep the peace in Ukraine and uh, similar messages. Um, Helena, where do you think China lands if, if pressed for a commitment uh, to decide on a side? That's a great question. And I think the first thing that has to be said is that this escalation of this crisis over Ukraine has put Beijing in a very difficult position. And I think what we are seeing right now with all these statements that you were referring to is Beijing sort of trying to square the circle to a certain extent. In an ideal scenario, Beijing would want this crisis to not exist. Uh, the Ukraine crisis, a, a potential Russian invasion, a full-blown Russian invasion of Ukraine has little to no upside for Beijing. Beijing wins nothing out of this. In particular, uh, I think it's important to consider the fact that if China were to openly side with, with Russia over this, it would risk damaging its relations with the EU, the US, And to be perfectly honest, many other countries around the world that often get forgotten in this conversation, but it would damage its its relations even further at a time where Beijing is effectively trying to do the opposite, right? In a politically very sensitive year, what the, the Chinese leadership is trying to do right now is to bring relations with the US and the EU back on track, or at least to try and, and manage tensions a little bit. So openly siding with Russia would scupper those efforts. It would also damage China's relations with Ukraine, which it has them, right? Bilateral and economic interests and with the region. It would cause instability and it would put Beijing in open opposition to its own longstanding principle of non-interference, which all the implications that has for, for China's reputation on, on the world stage. So the upsides are very limited if they exist at all. But on the other hand, We need to consider the fact that Beijing looks at this through a very clear lens of geopolitical competition. The world today is not the same as the world was in 2014, when China was able to stay out of the fray and, as they say, remain somewhat neutral, in quotation marks. Uh, I mean, as far as I understand, Chinese banks did abide, for instance, by Western sanctions on Russia back in 2014, right? That's a situation that I... I can't see happening today because of the sort of external environment that China is operating in. 
increasing geopolitical competition means that for Beijing, this crisis is not just about Ukraine. It's way broader. This is going to put Beijing in a position of having to decide how it can best pursue its global ambitions and how it can or should position itself vis-a-vis the West and vis-a-vis Russia right now and in years to come. And I get a sense that the decision is not particularly clear and that they didn't particularly want to have to take it right now and so openly. And they are scrambling a little bit to, as I said, find that balance and square that circle. And this is where those statements come from. I mean, if you've noticed most of the Chinese statements about the the crisis in Ukraine or the situation in, in Ukraine, they don't really take Russia's side but they also don't take the West side either, right? So they are calling for restraint. They are calling for de-escalation. They are calling for a negotiated solution, but they're also blaming the tensions on the fact that the Minsk agreements weren't properly implemented, which is a very clear echo of the Kremlin's narrative on on this issue. So they're trying to do both. They're trying to not antagonize the West and not worsen relations with the West, while at the same time, somewhat showing Russia that they stand with them. And that's a balance that so far is working, or at least sort of working, but that is unlikely to hold if the situation escalates any further. So that's the difficult position that that Beijing is in at the moment. If I just could add something to it, I very much agree with this assessment. And on the potential strategic gains from Russia's escalation, I think we indeed need to go beyond Ukraine itself. I think when uh, we look at the initial Russian goals with this escalation we're seeing since last fall, it was not only about getting control over Ukraine this way or another through Minsk agreements or through open escalation, I would say it now, but it was also about dividing the West. This whole campaign, the diplomatic campaign that Putin has run, was about driving a wedge between the U.S. administration and Germany or France on the other hand. They were demanding separate responses to their demands. They were inviting Macron and uh, Scholz, trying to play on uh, economic interests of Europe. That was the idea the Russians had. Unfortunately for us in the West, they, they basically failed. The West proved to be strong. But when I think of it from the Chinese point of view, I think this is potentially the biggest strategic gain they could have for Russia to drive a wedge between Europe and the US is the biggest long-term strategic gain because it will preclude coordination on things that China cares for, including technology and so on and so forth. But it failed. The Russian calculations failed. And now we are moving into a new sphere, which I think is much more uncomfortable for China, just you know, uh, echoing the things that Helena said. In the previous status quo, it has changed two days ago <laughs> with the invasion, uh, like the formal entrance of Russian troops and the end of Minsk agreements before China was in a safe spot saying, we want the Minsk agreements to be upheld. That basically meant that uh, if they were implemented, that Russia will have a veto power with their control over Luhansk and Donetsk over Ukraine. So so the Chinese were able to support Russia on one hand and also uh, stick to the official UN position on the other hand. So it was super comfortable. But now we are in a new status quo, which was much more tough for China. And I think we'll see the the new 
balance sort of forming here. Since they they criticized the Western sanctions against Russia, they said that it's not working. So they're giving them some helping hand. But then on the other hand, we had Wang Yi's speech at Munich, and uh, they they also wanted to kind of uh, reduce the the damage. The, the diplomatic damage, the reduced the systemic risks. So this is the, the tightrope they're walking on. But my take will be that on a very strategic level, the strategic considerations are on Russia's side. I think it's also quite interesting to look at, at timings to a certain extent, right? So Xi Jinping and Putin meet in Beijing on February 4th. This joint statement is released. And note that this joint statement does not actually mention Ukraine. It mentions Russia's security concerns in Europe and the need for countries' security concerns to be respected and for the security model in Europe, etc. So it is indirectly about Ukraine, but China didn't openly publicly come out in support of Russia's position on the Ukraine issue, whereas Russia did over Taiwan. Taiwan is named. Uh, so there's there's a difference there already. Beijing was already, to my mind, hedging a little bit and being a little bit careful. And then Yes, Moscow respected the Winter Olympics, so nothing really happened over Ukraine until the, the closing ceremony was was over. But we need to think about the fact that Wang Yi spoke at the Munich Security Conference on Saturday, February 19th, where he said that from China's perspective, the solution was to implement the Minsk agreements and to follow the UN Charter and that every country's sovereignty and independence and territorial integrity, including Ukraine's, which he mentioned by name, must be respected. Official Chinese position, right? Just two days later, Putin comes out and gives a speech ripping up the Minsk agreements and declaring that he's going to recognize Luhansk and, and Donetsk as two new independent republics. That, to my mind, is not an example of Sino-Russian coordination on this topic. Uh, I mean, this is impossible to say for certain, but it sounds a little bit like China may have been blindsided by this, which could also help explain some of this scrambling we're seeing right now to come up with a coherent position. I mean, the traditional Chinese view of China-Russia relations is, as Jakub was saying, this sort of back-to-back -back fighting, but also a phrase that used to come up quite often was this, China and Russia are not always with each other, but they are never against each other. And that was a, a situation that they were comfortable operating in. And suddenly that playbook has been ripped up. All I can say here is that I, I do agree that they are in a very tough position that China is used to having those long-term stances on many things that will allow them to do nothing and do not, not react as the situation unfolds. But what Russia brought now, especially with the, this initial idea of dividing the West failing, Russia brought a situation when you cannot pre-plan this. They might have talked about next steps in February, but we are in a very different situation. Now it's, it's so fluid that I, I do agree that this MFA conference of constantly dodging questions is a sign that New things are happening they, they could not imagine uh, before, and they need to react uh, right away, which is not a thing that China is used to. And probably not very comfortable with. 
we mentioned that, or Helena, you mentioned that in 2014, China mostly abided by European sanctions on, on Russia after taking over Crimea from Ukraine. This time, uh, sanctions have also tightened after uh, the Kremlin has uh, recognized the, the separatist regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. And the question now is, will China abide by these sanctions? And if not, what ways and avenues does it have to, to support Russia in, in countering those? Um, maybe, Jakub, maybe you, you want to go first? Yeah, thanks for this question. It's, it's very relevant now. I would say this economic relationship between China and Russia is pretty sanction-proof. And why is that? First of all, it's not very tight. It's a long story of Russia trying to keep China at arm's length in terms of economics, not letting China into uh, major investments, not selling major assets, not getting much capital out of China, uh, precisely for the reasons of autonomy. Uh, they, they want to stay autonomous in what they perceive as an asymmetric relationship. They care for this to be not even more asymmetric, so they keep China at arm's length. That makes the initial response to the sanctions a question of Russia's own preparedness. And China is only a secondary factor here. But when it comes to the question of whether China will not abide the sanctions or not, they openly said, criticize the sanctions in general, as we heard. But I would say the channels through which they, they exchange capital and trade are pretty well sanction proof. And why is that? It's, it's precisely because of the previous sanctions post 2014 that basically scared off all Chinese commercial banks state-owned, but still commercial banks like the Bank of China, the ICBC, and the biggest ones that they have extensive operations in Europe and the US, and they were not willing to risk anything for a market as small as the Russian one. So they're not there. And if you look at the data of the, the, the Russian banking sector's liability side, they're not drawing money from China. But then there's another channel that runs between state-owned policy banks. CDB and Exim Bank extending huge credit lines to the Russian equivalents, VTB and VEB, where basically they're dealing with each other. And uh, this is pretty well shielded from any sanctions since they can uh, they can switch to renminbi if they want. They already tried that. They can switch to euro too if they want it. And just leaving this last point, which really adds a, a very uh, spicy ingredient to this whole thing. China and Russia for the last eight years were de-dollarizing their trade, moving into not primarily renminbi and ruble, but euro, which is probably now, as far as we have data, the most widely used currency in their bilateral dealings. So this, this kind of adds the spice of sanctions on their bilateral relations being dependent on the European answer to what Russia does. Maybe I'll jump in here. I don't have a lot to add to what Jakub said, since he's uh, much more of an expert on, on this issue of sanctions and the China-Russia economic relationship. But I think something that we need to consider here is not only whether China will abide by Western sanctions on Russia, it's also what China may be able to do indirectly to help Russia mitigate the impact of these sanctions on its economy. And I think that there is probably where, where China is going to be focusing most. 
as Jakub was saying, the China-Russia relationship is quite sanctions-proof. So all these Western sanctions that we've seen so far, again, as has been announced by many European countries, by Brussels, by Washington, there may be, probably will be further sanctions coming, right? So, so the situation is very much in flux. But what we've seen right now, those sanctions are probably not going to affect China all that much. And China has also, over the last few years, built this, this legal framework precisely to make sure that Chinese citizens and, and companies and institutions are shielded from the effects of, of foreign sanctions uh, or for even secondary sanctions, right? Including the anti-foreign sanctions law that was approved last year. So that's important to consider that legal framework is there. But when it comes to helping Russia mitigate the, the impact of sanctions, that China can do, and it's in its own interests. And here I is sort of the context and the background against which I would look at the deals that were announced at the beginning of February when, when Putin was in, in Beijing. So all these, these new agreements, especially in the energy sector, although not exclusively, these are the sort of deals that China can, can use to help Russia not bypass the sanctions, but again, mitigate the impact. So that, I think, is the the secondary element here to to consider. And then the question to my mind is, where does this go in the in the long run? So the China-Russia relationship is already asymmetrical and, and the balance of power within that relationship is clearly shifting gradually in China's favor. China is becoming a, a more and more relevant global power. Its economy is growing, its military is modernizing. Russia, on the other hand, not so much. Its sort of geopolitical role and power is weakening. Its economy is stagnated. I was reading this morning that the Russian economy is currently the size of Spain's, with three or four times the population, which means that the GDP per capita is, of course, much, much lower, right? So it's, it's already an asymmetric relationship. If Russia becomes even more reliant on, on China, economically speaking, again, to try and, and mitigate the impact that Western sanctions will have, on the Russian economy, that is going to accelerate that shifting balance of power and that trend that we're already seeing. And that, of course, plays in China's favor to a certain extent, because China, Beijing is going to be able to dictate a lot more the terms of the relationship. But on the other hand, that may also sour the relationship. I'm not a Russia expert myself, but I doubt very much that Russia would be happy becoming China's junior partner in this relationship. So, so this issue of the sanctions and of China coming to Russia's aid can also have unintended consequences, or maybe intended, depending on which of the two parties you're looking at. Yeah, just reinforcing the arguments that Helen has laid out, looking at the data, you can really see this happening. In the bad times, the share of Chinese lending directly to Russian companies has increased. That is 2009, in 2014 and 15. That's where a lot of direct lending from Exxon and CDB landed in Russia, especially the energy companies. It's certainly a bad weather friend in terms of external finance for Russian enterprises, also through those loan for oil deals with big Russian energy companies, which basically mean China was downpaying for the future supply of resources, providing a lot of liquidity to Russian companies. But then on the asymmetrical aspect of that, I, I fully agree that if you look at the economic negotiations, and especially in the energy sector between China and Russia, 
China is really always waiting for the moment of Russia's weakness while negotiating prices and the terms of lending. So I, I think that really you know, fits this general assessment that Helena uh, presented us of them waiting for this thing to become even more asymmetrical. But I think the Russians are perfectly aware of that. <laughs> and the way they build their sanction-proof economy in the last eight years was not to be overlined on China, but rather itself. But it may land in the predicament that will, they will have no more of their own instruments on the table, and then they may come to actually come to Beijing. Yes. So we have established that sanctions cannot be the only answer. What avenues does the European Union have to react to this situation, especially to put pressure on Beijing to uh, not fully side with Russia or even edge a little bit closer to their European position? That's a big question that I don't think we'll be able to tackle in its entirety here today. But I'll, I'll give some, some general points here. I mean, I think the first thing that has to be said is that if China openly supports Russia's aggression against Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Europe, the US, the West, however we want to phrase it, we need to make sure that costs are imposed. This would be Beijing not just being a bit of an enabler of Russian behavior, this would be kind of open support, right? And in either case, costs have to be imposed. What are those costs? There's a wide range of tools, right, that the EU and, and the West can bring to the table. Sanctions, of course, is one of them. There's diplomatic measures that could be taken. So th there's a lot of things that, that can be done. But I think something else to consider here is in Europe, when politicians, policymakers, governments often talk about the China-Russia relationship, at least up until a few months ago or a few days ago even, the consensus seemed to be, even if very few of them were willing to openly phrase it, that this relationship in the long run is not in our interests and we would very much like to see China and Russia break up, right? So that's the ultimate goal. And again, most policymakers in Europe would agree behind closed doors. And the solution that was often proposed was to try and peel Russia away from China, right? By, by trying to re-engage Russia, by showing Russia that cooperation with the West was still possible and that linking itself exclusively to China may not be in its own long-term interests. The picture has flipped a little bit on us, right? And, and now the question maybe should be the opposite. Can we peel China away from Russia? This crisis doesn't mean that the relationship between China and the West has changed overnight. But can we communicate to, to China that on certain issue areas, cooperation with the West, of course, remains possible, and that realistically speaking, China can probably get more from the West and it needs the West more than it needs Russia uh, for its future growth and development. So can we try and get Beijing to make a choice here in which it maybe pulls away from Russia a little bit simply to try and preserve the relations with the EU, with the US that it already has? Again, we're not talking about an overnight 
miraculous improvement of ties, but simply preserving the status quo. I have doubts as to whether this would work, but I think it's it's a question that policymakers should be asking themselves, especially those that have been advocating for exactly this course of action, but focusing on Moscow. Can we do the same with, with Beijing? At a point where it seems that Moscow is dragging Beijing down a path that Beijing doesn't really want to be on. And this is particularly key this year, 2022. We haven't mentioned this just yet, but the 20th Communist Party Congress is coming up. This is a very sensitive year. This is politically very key, and Beijing is not interested in having any sort of major instability domestically or internationally in any way, shape, or form. So this isn't helping. So can we get China to do the right thing here by sort of playing on on these points? Well, I I would like to jump right into this argument now because uh, this is the carrot part of the solution. And I think we also need the stick part and we need it badly because in a way, I, I do agree that this is the line of thinking that is forming now in the Western debates and how to bait China away from Russia by offering it some concessions and dialogue and maybe economic cooperation. And this is precisely the way the West has employed towards Russia for the last couple of years, saying that we need to cooperate with Russians because otherwise they will fall into the hands of the Chinese. And what Russians did with that is they took every concession possible and then at the very end, they openly like undermined everything that we stand for, which I think is a strategy that they employed. They really played on this idea of them being dragged away, sending subtle signals saying that, wow, we are so scared of China, please help us. But at the end of the day, what we're seeing now is that undermining the European security architecture. And for China, that might play a bit differently because they, they just care for different things. They're much more vested in the global economic system. So it does, the carrot might actually work better. But in order for them to really not take the carrot and just you know do nothing, we need to have a stick too. And I think the biggest threat for China now in terms of the European responses to this. The biggest threat that that we can threat them with is the transatlantic cooperation on the issues that we have already on the table. Technology, trade, intellectual poverty, value chains, uh, you know, partial technological decoupling. It's all on the table. We we just uh, like we're fortunately talking about that I think we'll have the TTC meeting soon in France. But this, I think, is what China fears the most. And the United Transatlantic plus Japan plus Australia plus Canada front on technological and economic issues. And uh, I think in a carrot and stick strategy, I think we need both. I do agree. At the end of the day, if they really decided to back up, we should have some cards in our hands, but I, I don't think this card strategy guarantees our success. I, I mean, I'll, I'll clarify what I said earlier because I completely agree, right? I mean, I started off talking about sanctions and sort of diplomatic engagement as the sticks. And when I was talking about this 
potential strategy or trying to kind of convince Beijing that maybe staying on, on Russia's side is an entirely in its own interest. I wasn't advocating for concessions. I'm very aware of the fact that that was attempted with Russia and it just made the situation way worse. This is not really about concessions. It's about playing, as you were saying, Jakub, on China's strategic interests. They don't want the relationship with the EU to get even worse. They still harbor hopes that the EU can be sort of a third pole in a multipolar world, right? Beijing's biggest dream to sort of break up the transatlantic alliance and to reach this uh, new fancy multipolar world uh, with the EU being completely independent, hence their love of strategic autonomy. So it's about playing on those interests, right? It's about just making clear that if China does this and supports Russia, there will be costs, there will be a worsening, it won't just be on transatlantic cooperation and geopolitical competition in the Indo-Pacific. It will be on economic relations. It will be on diplomatic engagement. And it will be basically across the board. Because that would be China coming out, again, very openly as an aggressor in Europe against European interests, against European security, against international law, against the rules-based international order. So those costs are there and they're implied. But can we sort of imply them and sort of try and, and convince China that doesn't really want to do this, right? So it's it's both simultaneously. So it's not about concessions. It's about making clear to China that it may not be in its interest to go down this path hand in hand with Russia, because that's going to lead to all these sticks and to a worsening of relationships that actually is not in its own interest. In closing, we talked about the conflict often as being in flux, uh, changing all the time. That is a problem for, for decision makers, but maybe it is also a chance. We have the chance to, to see this conflict unfold um, and also maybe take lessons on board for the future. Um, what we can learn from this conflict, what can we learn from previous conflicts? It is highly probable that China will pay attention to all the events unfolding around itself uh, and in the West. and. My final question would be to the two of you, um, what kind of things do you pay attention to um, or should we all pay attention to to maybe be better prepared for developments in the future, other conflicts? Yeah, uh, it, I, I, I won't even try to make any short-term predictions <laughs> uh, as, as everything is, is in flux now. I think one general lesson that Uh, that China may draw from that, that the West is actually much better prepared than they thought. Uh, I, I think their assessment of the EU as such, or the US, is that we are deep in conflicts both within our societies and among the West, and that this will crumble if it was touched. That was the basic premise of Russian strategy towards Europe in the last months. And as of now, and I hopefully that will go on in the future, this did not prove to be true. It was not only joint action by the US and the EU, but now we have Japan joining sanctions against uh, Russia, which brings us a, a new, you know, Indo-Pacific kind of a level of this response. And uh, I can't quite wrap my mind around the possible implications, but I think China might actually be changing its thinking about and the goals they have long term, Taiwan, 
South China Sea, uh, that this actually, if the if this becomes kinetic and not merely about you know tug of a war in the in the economic space, if this becomes kinetic and serious, then the West is much more united than they thought, which may deter it, but unfortunately may also make some shortcuts in their strategic thinking that it's you don't negotiate you just need to go on with uh, harsh measures and i that's why i think this crisis now is so relevant because that's the second test that we'll have as the west as what it becomes kinetic and what it when uh, it comes to the phase of actually paying for our deterrence with our money with our you know wallets uh, and the sanctions. And that's uh, the other great test we have ahead of us. And I'm pretty sure that China is looking at this very carefully. And I'm pretty sure the whole in the Pacific is looking at it very carefully uh, and adjusts their ways, which kind of plays in favor of actually these two theaters being interconnected in the long run. I completely agree. I think that's important to be said, right? This crisis can set precedent and, and sort of give an example of how the West deals with situations like this one. And that's why China is looking at it very carefully. Other countries in the Indo-Pacific will look at it very carefully. And it's very difficult to say right now what sort of lessons Beijing will draw from this and whether this will have an impact on how it, it handles its claims over Taiwan or over the South China Sea. That still remains to be seen. But the fact that Beijing is looking at this carefully and that lessons will be drawn, I think that's clear. And what I would just like to to say, maybe to just wrap up here, is that what the Ukraine crisis has showed us so far is the importance of a number of things. One, the importance of deterrence. Two, the importance of preparation, right? So if we see this coming, what are we going to do? What are those measures? Those packages have to be ready in advance. And third, the importance of unity and coherence. And this is within the EU. This is in a transatlantic space. This is within NATO. This is within sort of the, the broader community of like-minded partners and allies. Fundamentally, the reason why we're also paying so much attention to, to China's role in the crisis and what it's going to do or not do is because this hits at the bottom line, right? At the, at the bigger issue of the rules-based international order, at the bigger issue of international law, which underpins European and Western interests and security. It underpins the post-war world order. So it's very fundamental to us, right? And that's why this is so, so key. Deterrence, preparation, unity and coherence, absolutely key and not giving the impression, not setting precedent in any way that can say to authoritarian states, Russia in this case, maybe China, maybe others in the future, that if they follow a certain playbook, the West will just let it go. And I think that should also be the lesson for us beyond the lessons that, that China will draw from this. Jakub, Helena, thank you very much for this insightful and lively conversation. I really enjoyed that. So did uh, I. Thanks, Johannes. To find out more about the work of our guests, be sure to check out their work at the OSW and Merrick's websites. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. 
You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makata Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.